Okay, I'm going to start about 20 seconds early here, since we have just a very quick housekeeping. So at the end of this session, we'll have a quick break. The Winter Garden will have re refreshments available for you, so soda pop and sugar, basically, <clears throat> and coffee. Uh, we call it the Winter Garden because when it is snowing outside, uh, we can have receptions here at the Cato Institute under palm trees. So that is why it was built. And I should add one other quick thing. Uh, when I talked about how power infects so many social relationships and things we don't ever think about, you might wonder, why is the Cato Institute built in such an odd fashion with that front and then the building inside, if you look at it, is set at an angle? It's because DC has lots of busybodies and rules that say the facade of a building must be parallel to the street. But this is a weird, odd-shaped lot. And consequently, the facade is parallel to the street, but the building is set at an angle to it. And it was built with balconies, which were a total waste of space. Total waste. Some space out there now gone, but the original building, it was outside. Every office had to be a balcony. So you could go out and grill hamburgers on the weekend uh, from your office. And the reason is another building, not visible from the Cato Institute, across the square has a balcony. That's it. That was the reason. And so the Cato architects had to do that because a member of the Advisory Neighborhood Commission demanded it for symmetry. Utterly pointless, but it cost actually a substantial amount of time and waste of space uh, to deal with it. So that's just one other example of how our lives are structured by power relations that have nothing to do with making anyone's lives better. I should mention also I had some very good conversations uh, about terms such as nation, country, state, and government. And I'll try to be more clear on how I stipulate the use of them. They're used in various terms in various different ways. The word government in America has a different meaning from government in Britain, for example. So I will try to be more careful. Professor Escalante brought that to my attention, that these technical words sometimes have different meanings in different contexts and even different uh, 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 legal systems and languages. What I want to talk about now is not so much the development of institutions. I'll deal with that again in my talk tomorrow. But the development of rights. I mentioned last night that when we talk about having liberty and being a free person, it really matters what you have liberty to do. It's silly to argue, as has been argued, that, for instance, it's a restriction on the First Amendment. I remember a piece in the Washington Post many years ago uh, when the Catholic Church sets some restrictions on the activities of their priests. Father Curran at Catholic University had been teaching a course in moral theology, and he believed things other than standard Catholic doctrine. And so his course was not licensed as a course in moral theology uh, for the priesthood. He did have a contract with Catholic University as a matter of the civil law, and they honored that. He taught courses, and they paid him. But you could take a course in moral theology from him. It didn't count towards what was required for going through the priesthood. You had to take it again from someone else 
who was approved. Writers in the Washington Post said this was against the First Amendment. Besides being really stupid, uh, there's the obvious problem. It says Congress shall make no law. It does not say the Roman Catholic Church can make no determination. So it was not a violation of his free speech rights at all. No one was telling him he couldn't say things, and he even did have a contract that was respected by the university as a matter of unemployment contract. It just didn't count for becoming a priest. But it's not up to the Washington Post or me or someone else to tell the Catholic Church how you may or may not become a priest in their church or how you may become a rabbi or an imam or anything else. So that's an example of we have to understand what, it is, what are the rights we're talking about in order to ask whether people are exercising their freedom. Now, a little bit of background about the emergence of liberty, because I'm going to skip very lightly over the surface, and in every case inadequately, because one could study this topic for a lifetime, on the development of this idea of rights as an instrument for human liberty. I'm very uh, uh, skeptical of grand philosophies of history. Uh, they're normally bunk. Uh, Hegel and Marx, and there's so many others, they tell you this big sweeping view of how everything had to happen. And I think history is full of lots of accidents, and I'll talk about a couple of them tomorrow. Things could have been very differently. It could have happened differently. The famous story of for want of a nail, the shoe was lost, and so on. Then finally the kingdom is lost because one horseshoe didn't have a nail on it. That actually happens more often than we care to think. We like to see patterns when sometimes there's randomness. That's why when you look at clouds, they look like faces and rabbits. They're not really rabbits in the sky. <laughs> there are no faces there, but we look for them. I'm sorry, uh, <laughs> no rabbits. We, our minds are structured such that we look for faces and we look for patterns even when they're not there. There's a great book by Nassim Talib called Fooled by Randomness. I really recommend it. It's a great uh, antidote to excessive search for patterns. Uh, so I'm skeptical. But I think we could say there's some conditions that are propitious, favorable to the emergence of liberty. And I'll just run through a couple of them very quickly. The first, the idea that there's some higher law. And it's not merely an expression of human will. Law is not just what the biggest guy with the stick says it is. And that takes, we can use shorthand in European context, there are two cities that could be identified with the two sources of this, Jerusalem and Athens. It's a very convenient little shorthand. Jerusalem, the idea of revealed religion, of theology, of God, being the foundation for some higher law. <clears throat> and then Athens, the idea of philosophy, of systematic human application of human reason. So these are just shorthand. It's not the only places where people came up with this, these ideas or approaches. If you think about Jerusalem, uh, think about the uh, uh, intellectual innovation, if you will, of the, of the Jews which was to see God as transcendent to God's creation. So the world is creation of God, but God is not a part of the world, another thing in the world. It's a really remarkable uh, change in theological orientation. Sociologists of religion have identified it in various ways. Theologians typically see it differently. They uh, see it as a revelation of, 
a god to humanity. <clears throat> but there's a very powerful poetic formulation in the book of Exodus, if you recall the story, seen the various movies uh, with Charlton Heston and the most recent one, I forget uh, who was in it, um, in which Moses, having led the people out of their slavery in Egypt, goes up to the mountain for some kind of interaction with God. He receives the law engraved <clears throat> on tablets. When he's up there, and this story makes it very, very clear what's going on, the people down below say, where's Moses? What happened to this guy? Led us out of the land of Egypt. And they go to Aaron. They say, what has become of him? And Aaron says, up, bring me your gold, your earrings, and so on. We'll melt it. He makes a golden calf, and they dance before it, and they sacrifice to it, and say, these are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Back on the mountain, Moses is having some kind of conversation, interaction, transaction with God that I think probably surpasses normal human comprehension, something, some interaction. Think about it as, in terms of contemporary teenage mentality, he goes to burningbush.com and he downloads something. Uh, he receives some very important message from God. And God says to him, he says, behold your people. This is a stiff-necked people. So they're very arrogant and proud for what they are doing. He says, leave me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I will completely destroy them. But of you, I'll make a great nation. It means you will have many children and a family that will emerge uh, from your union. And what is remarkable about the story, really surprising, is Moses argues with God, which is not what you might immediately expect, that God says this is the way it's going to be, and he has an argument with him. In some ways, it's a uniquely Jewish story. <laughs> he argues with God. And again, this, I think, goes beyond the, our normal capacity to understand. But in some way, the Lord repented of the decision he had made and what he wanted to do to his people. But the message is very clear. Do not do this again. That piece of gold is not God. It is part of God's creation. God is somehow transcendent to that. And that has a political manifestation. One of the worst things that one could say is for a mere human being to stand up and say to you, I am a God. Worship me. Bow down before me. As the pharaohs of Egypt had done. The pharaohs claimed to be divine. One pharaoh had not, Akhenaton, and he came to a very bad end. And at the end of his reign, there's evidence of massive fires in the temples. There was a huge uh, social conflict, possibly because it turned out saying, well, technically I'm not God, was very bad for the temple contribution business. And so there was enormous strife in Egypt over that. <clears throat> but the uh, uh, pharaohs and then also even the Roman emperors claimed divine status. So this is something enormously uh, hubristic, to claim that you're God was a terrible sin. In Athens, you see a somewhat different formulation, and of course many theologians and different traditions have worked very hard to reconcile them, and, and Judaism and Christianity and Islam, reconciliation of religious revelation and philosophy. Uh, 
their philosophy, the love of wisdom, is about the systematic application of human reason to figure out how stuff works, how the world is as it is, and to understand that there's something rational beneath it. The Greek word logos is particularly rich, means a speech, an account, but it can also mean a recipe, it can mean reason, but ultimately it comes down to word and speech. Of course, you get an echo of this in the Christian New Testament as well. In the beginning was the word, was the logos. And it's not word quite as we understand it in English. It means something deeper than that, a rational account or speech that is the foundation of everything. And Aristotle, one of the great scientists uh, who wanted to study and learn everything, he had all kinds of animals brought to him. He was interested in everything why the heavens move the way that they do, how turtles walk, how fish swim, how we can walk, where worms come from, just everything. He was interested in everything. He wanted to understand nature. And there is, by the way, a very interesting passage, which I think is a hint. Aristotle, I think, had a more natural law foundation than many people give him credit to. He is often a uh, uh, cited as the source of the doctrine of natural slavery, and that is true. He talks about slaves by nature, but his description of slaves by nature don't sound like the slaves that were around him. They were clearly slaves by convention. A slave by nature is someone who doesn't have any principle of motion of his own, but is like a part of the body of the master. If that's the case, why would they run away? Your feet don't normally run away from you or try to escape. Imagine what a strange life that would be if your limbs were constantly trying to escape from you and you had to gather them together. <clears throat> That's not how it works. And I suspect that there's a subtle, at least the foundation for a critique of slavery that was later picked up by later Stoic and, and other writers. But he also has an interesting passage about the nature of humans that I think was very pregnant, although he doesn't expand on it at great length. He says about fire something quite remarkable. So most people know that in the Greek worldview at the time, there are two types of featherless bipeds, us. Two legs, no feathers. They are Greeks and what, anyone know the other type? Barbarians. barbarians, exactly. Greeks and barbarians. And barbarians are called barbarians, best evidence is, because? They're not Greek. Yes, <laughs> but specifically they can't talk. You walk up to them and you say something in perfectly clear Greek and they say bar, 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 bar. They can't talk. So they're barbaroi. They're the people who can't talk. And that's actually not uncommon. Many languages have that. There's us, the people, and the other ones are sometimes called mutes. So the word for German in um, some languages uh, means mute because when you went up to talk to a German, it just he can't speak. And in Austrian dialect of German, if you want to say something is nonsense, you say it's Böhmisch. He's, er hat nur Böhmisch gesprochen. He was just speaking Czech, which sounds like a duck quacking to German ears. This doesn't sound like language. So there's Greeks and barbarians. But built on this was a bit of chauvinism. Clearly Greeks were superior and so on. And he says, fire does not burn one way in Persia and another way in Greece. There's fire. We want to understand the nature of fire. Now, there's no Greek fire and Persian fire. It's just fire. It doesn't matter whether it burns in Greece or in Persia. 
And given his understanding of logic, I think he was saying something similar about human beings as well. When he says that the paleness or darkness of a person's skin is an accidental characteristic, a predicate, and not an essential one. That what is essential to being human is to be tso'on logon, the animal with logos, the animal who talks. That's what it is to be a human. And to be a pale-colored human or a dark-colored human was just accidental. Had nothing to do with the essence, the nature of the human being, which is this animal who talks, usually translated as the rational animal. But I think that doesn't capture exactly what he's talking about, because the rationality, which is the Latinite taking logos into ratio in Latin, we now in English think it means calculating. The rational is calculating. It's not what it means. It means is the animal who can have discourse, who can talk to others. And from that, we develop doctrines of the natural law. And of course, there are great syntheses of this in different religious traditions. In Judaism, Moses Maimonides, Christianity, we think about Aristotle, of uh, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, and in Islam, Ibn Rushd, or Averroes, and others in that tradition. So that's the first thing. Law isn't just what a guy with a big club says it is. Second, law can be discovered as well as made. Now, the more primitive theory of law, law is imposed. And I mentioned Jean Baudin. Law is imposed suddenly by one man with force. <clears throat> and what comes out of that in the doctrine of sovereignty is the one who does that is above the law. Because if I make the law and I later find it inconvenient, I'll just make a different one. This is articulated very clearly in the writings on absolutism, Jean Baudin. But then also King... Um, James VI and I, who comes to the English throne, 1603, King James of Scotland, the extinction of the Tudor line in England, he becomes King James I of England. So he's not King James VII, because you can't add kingships. He's King James VI and I. And in 1598, he wrote a very important book, The True Law of Monarchies, in which he demonstrated, in his view, that the king is above the law and can do anything he desires. And whatever he desires is the law. That's perfectly rational if law is imposed, if it's just made. On the other hand, if law can be discovered, it does not follow that the discoverer of the law is somehow not subject to it. So if we think Sir Isaac Newton, he discovers a law of attraction that will generate the elliptical orbits necessary to account for the elliptical orbits that uh, Brahe, Tycho Brahe and Kepler had described. The force law that it, by which these two objects are attracted is a force inversely proportional to the square of the distance between them, which will generate an elliptical orbit. It does not follow that Sir Isaac Newton was exempt from that, that had he been shot into space, he would have some interesting other non-elliptical orbit around the planet. Uh, he also is subject to the same force law. So if laws can be discovered, it doesn't follow that the discoverer or the legal process is above the law or somehow not subject to it. So the classical liberal tradition puts a great emphasis on the discovery of law as well. And then finally, that the system of law allows claims of individuals and groups to be formulated as rights. And here, language, definitions, and so on is not so significant. What is a right? Is it a power or a claim? And so on. But that people are able to assert in a court of law the claims that they make against others. We might look back on them and say some of those claims are very unjust or wicked or inefficient. 
but a legal system that allows people to articulate as law the claims that they make. And there are systems, political systems, in which law in that sense was virtually absent. Virtually absent. And in others in which it's the dominant force. Or you find huge documentation of legal cases and legal arguments. And others in which it's virtually absent. Now, all societies and groups recognize some system of rights as a sociological reality, as a part of society. The right to exclude other people from scarce resources. Every social order has some system of what we now call in English property rights. Even socialism rested on property rights. There was some state administration, some ministry, some set of managers, a kolkhoz, who had the right to exclude other people from coming in, working there, taking the resources away, and so on. The question is, some are more just than others, and some are more efficient than others. So it is not the case, for example, the Soviet Union had a central planning system in which the plan was revised every week, five-year plan. What sense was this a plan? They had a highly inefficient, broken market economy that did not function well. They had a non-monetized economy. They had multiple kinds of rubles that could not be exchanged amongst each other. And what happened was an economy of favors. People couldn't trade money, which wasn't very valuable, couldn't buy anything with it, so they traded favors. It's called, there's a very wonderful Russian word to describe that, <clears throat> blot. Uh, blot is the exchange of favors. How did you get that fur coat? How did you get the trip to the Black Sea? How did you get that automobile? I got it from blot. Namely, I did a favor for someone, I did a favor for someone, and it came back as a favor to me. Extremely inefficient, but that was how things actually happened not because there was a great central plan directing all of the enterprises. There was a system of rights, but in this case, highly inefficient and profoundly unjust. So that's a sociological reality. We can then think about it, think about it from the perspective of moral philosophy, of economics, and so on, and figure out ways to improve it. Now, it's also important when we talk about property to understand what does it mean, this term property? Uh, it now means, in English, your stuff. What is your property? It's your stuff. But the original meaning is very important to keep in mind. Locke puts it very clearly, and he's one of many writing in this way. Man being born has been proved with a title to perfect freedom and an uncontrolled enjoyment of all the rights and privileges of the law of nature, equally with any other man or number of men in the world, hath by nature a power to preserve his property, that is, his life, liberty, and estate. So when sometimes our, our leftist friends uh, claim, oh, we're for human rights, you're for property rights, with the suggestion that advocates of markets or <clears throat> libertarians believe property has rights, whereas they believe humans have rights, this is clearly incoherent. No one believes the stuff has rights, per se. It's human beings who have rights with regard to their stuff. But very importantly, that term property did not just mean your stuff. What happened, so we would say today in English, this is my property. Locke would have said, this is part of my estate. 
my stuff. My property encompasses my life. If you take or threaten my life, you're taking and threatening my property. My freedom is part of my property. My freedom to speak, to worship God, these are my property <clears throat> to come and go, and my stuff, the way in which I realize my purposes in life interact interacting with objects of this sort. <clears throat> That's my estate. That is a part of my property, but the proper understanding is life, liberty, and estate. And so you have a property in your religious opinions. Sounds kind of odd today, but a property in your religious opinions means the right to express them, the right to worship according to your own lights without being punished by the state for heresy or uh, having an interpretation of the Bible or relationship to God that other people consider incorrect. <clears throat> but then let's think about law and property and freedom. And again, Locke, his second uh, treatise, his two treatises generally, but the second especially, is such an important canonical work uh, helping us to understand that. And I quoted this uh, a little bit last night. The end of law is not to abolish or restrain, but to preserve and enlarge freedom. Where there is no law, there is no freedom. That's very important. Where there is no law, there is no freedom. How can you be free if anyone can do anything he or she wants? That could not mean freedom for anybody under that condition. He refers to that later as license, the idea that you can just do anything you want without regard to the consequences to anybody else. But it is uh, the right to order your person, and as a typo, it says persons, it should be singular, actions, possessions, and his whole property. And they are not to be subject to the arbitrary will of another, but freely follow his own. So you may do what you want with what is yours. In your home, you may smoke. In my home, you may not. I don't like smoking, but I don't insist on crusading on other people. Come into my home, I ask that you not smoke. If I go into your home and you say smoking is required, that's the rule. I won't go in. But that is how we determine how this freedom is to be exercised. It is delineated by these various rights. Now, in doing so, it, rem it reminds us, though, that every human being has this claim as a tso'on logon, as a rational animal, as a creature with moral agency. What's remarkable about human beings <clears throat> that they share with very little else in the world other than cats is our moral responsibility. We are accountable uh, for what we do. Most creatures don't have a strong sense of guilt. Humans and cats do, uh, which is why they bear natural rights. Uh, this is part of the legacy left to us by Marcus Tullius Cicero. Someone here asked me, you asked me, right, to mention Cicero, so I'm, I'm glad. He's a great hero of mine, also a most interesting person, a great lawyer and orator, savior of the Republic, not a military man, which is made very clear uh, by his colleagues. They sent him home when he showed up at the military camp during the Civil War. They said, uh, <clears throat> Marcus, uh, <clears throat> This is, this is not the place for you. And it was his good friend Cato, who was a very tough soldier who marched through the Libyan deserts barefoot with his men who refused to ride a horse and always drank last after the soldiers had, had their water. Uh, Cato said, Cicero, this is not your thing. You should go back to Rome. 
Cicero is one of the most influential people in European history and in our tradition because he wrote beautiful Latin. And as a consequence, his Latin was copied and copied and copied. And we have more copies of his works than just about anyone else. He was a great lawyer, as I said, not a military man, but he used persuasion, argument, and rhetoric to win his cases. Uh, he also was murdered. Uh, Cicero, or Cato committed suicide rather than being pardoned. Cicero was murdered. His head and hands were cut off and displayed in the forum. And because he was such a great orator, a pin was put through his tongue, which is a sign of a very small person to do such a thing. Uh, in his book on duties, which is available today, the whole text, as well as his massive correspondence with his uh, friend Atticus, uh, which tells us a great deal about the civil wars and the political intrigue in Rome, several weeks are missing just prior to the assassination of Julius Caesar, by the way. And it has been suggested his friend Atticus removed those because he probably was somehow implicated in it. But those are interestingly redacted from the text. But he has this powerful passage, which is quoted over and over and over by later writers in the classical, early proto-liberal tradition of human rights. We are all constrained by one and the same law of nature. And if that is true, then we are certainly forbidden by the law of nature from acting violently against another person. That to be on logon means we should interact with speech. We should persuade. We should use rhetoric rather than violence on other people. Now, this notion of rhetoric, and he wrote great books on rhetoric, uh, one of which I recommend always to our interns to read. It's short. It's called De Invencione. It's one of the great books of classical rhetoric and the ordering of arguments. Uh, and just to make us all feel really good, he was a teenager when he finished it. Uh, but it was not the, the work of the mature Cicero. It was his compilation of what his teachers had taught him. His father hired very good teachers for him. Um, uh, he promoted rhetoric and discussion as the alternative to violence. Now, all of the statists have always hated rhetoric. Think about the attacks on advertising. Plato's attack on rhetoric and the Gorgias, his dialogue, an attack on rhetoric and the rhetoricians. He says, it's just flattery. You're tricking people. And the reason is that rhetoric is essential, is essential to a free society. It's about how to persuade people rather than hitting them over the head, using reasons, arguments, and evidence, not flattering people. It's not always about putting... Uh, Beautiful people on top of a car to sell the car. That does get people's attention. I don't think many people buy the car because of the beautiful people on it. It gets their attention. But then they do ask, what's the mileage? How does it drive? Uh, and so on. Uh, but that's how they see rhetoric. It's just the beautiful models on top of the car tricking you into buying the car. Rhetoric is about persuading people to bring about social coordination. The market economy is based on rhetoric. Not just advertising, but just the existence of prices. There's a wonderful passage in The Wealth of Nations when Adam Smith talks about the propensity to truck barter and exchange one thing for another. He says, I will not go into the original of this. This is an interesting question why we do that, but humans have this propensity to truck barter and exchange one thing for another, namely to trade, as we would say today. 
But he gave, in his lectures on jurisprudence, he devoted a whole lecture to this topic. And if you look at that, he does explore why it is that humans trade. And it's very interesting. He says it's because we talk and we like to persuade each other. It's a great pleasure for us. And he says the offering of a shilling, which appears to have so plain and simple a meaning, is in reality offering a reason to do something because it is for your interest. That that's what offering a shilling or a monetary payment is about, is persuading people to do something because it'll be beneficial to them. It's an act of persuasion. <coughs> then he gives an example of having seen animals. He says, I've seen animals cooperate in the hunt to chase down a rabbit. Dogs will do that. But he says, I've never seen dogs say, look, I'll give you that piece of the rabbit in exchange for this other piece. They don't seem to exchange. They do cooperate. He says the act of exchange seems a kind of cooperation that may be unique to human beings. It's an interesting question about animal sociology. But we know human beings do it, and we find it, I think, innately pleasurable uh, as well. Now that idea of this fundamental law of nature and the equality of all human natures was then reformulated in the Middle Ages into this idea of dominium. And it was applied in very interesting contexts, often contexts of social strife. Uh, Innocent IV, who was one of the great lawyer popes in one of his decretals, which was a kind of legal decision, it's something similar to what in Islam is called a fatwa, and I should clarify something. Unfortunately, in uh, America and maybe Europe, the term fatwa has come to have a, a, a very dark meaning because people only think it is a, 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 a contract for murder because the Ayatollah Khomeini said there's a fatwa that says anyone can kill Salman Rushdie. So it has taken this unfortunate connotation of being a murder contract. Uh, what it is, and that's really, really shameful, it's, it's a legal determination, it's a statement about what is the right resolution of a problem or the right way to behave in some situation that may be unclear, that requires a learned scholar to think through. And these decretals were essentially fatwas in the Christian context, a legal declaration of what is right. And the question was, during the Crusades, the wars for the cross over great swaths of territory, uh, between Islamic and Christian rulers and armies, unfortunately with the Jews typically got it getting caught in between as so often happened and uh, victimized. The question arose, well, can you take the lands of Muslims, can you take their lives, can you take their jurisdictions of Muslims and Jews, they're not Christians. And he said, no, you may not. I maintain that dominium Possession and jurisdiction can belong to infidels, non-Christians, licitly and without sin. For these things are made not only for the faithful, but for every rational creature, as has been said. So Muslims and Jews are rational creatures. They have also the right to life, the right to their legal systems, uh, the right to their possessions. And you may not do this. He did argue you may retake lands they have taken from us, he conceived it and understood it because there had been Christian territories or Christian populated territories conquered by Muslim armies. He said, you may take that back and no more. And you may not persecute them once you've taken that back and restored it. So it's a doctrine of moderation 
in that context. He also went on to cite Matthew 22, uh, which is a very powerful passage in the New Testament, which suggests that God doesn't send uh, the, the um, uh, sun to shine or the rain to fall just on the favored people, but it falls on everybody. The sun shines on everyone and the rain falls regardless of who you are. And so he said we must respect them. Now this word dominium is a very rich word. It comes from the Latin domus, a house, and a dominus was the master of the house. And we have a little echo of this today, but at the time, uh, the dominus, the master of the house, the male head of the household, had absolute power. And in classical Roman law, including the power of life and death over members of the family, he could sell his sons into slavery, he could execute members of the family, was a kind of tribal chieftain of a small tribe of the family. We don't believe that, and a great deal of what civilization has been has been shedding that and seeing the individual human being as a source of moral worth and value, not just the family. But we still have a little element of that. If your neighbor's children were to break your window with a baseball, you probably would not go out, grab the child, shake the child, take money from the child's wallet to pay for the window. If you did that, uh, just don't basically. Uh, you go to ask the child's parents. You say, Timmy broke my window again. I want this to be stopped. Tell Timmy this is bad, and I want you to buy a new window for me, right? You go to the parents, the responsible persons. So what Dominus meant was the one who had responsibility and accountability. The Dominus was also responsible for the behavior of all the members of the household. One of the reasons they had it went with that absolute power. You don't want to be responsible for people you cannot control. So to have dominion meant responsibility, accountability. You are master of yourself. That is the key idea. You have moral accountability. Now this idea was articulated by lots of other writers. And here's a little hint to the difficulty of doing intellectual history, especially in this area. Quite often, people are sharing ideas, but they're on different sides of political and legal and military conflicts. They can't cite each other because the other guy's a heretic or evil. Marsilius of Padua had taken the imperial sign, side, he sided with the German emperor, in his book, The Defensor Pacis, but he has a long discussion of this idea of dominium, which is translated by his uh, English translator as ownership, a very interesting translation of dominion, mastery or ownership, is used to refer to the human will or freedom in itself. It is through these acts we are capable of certain acts and their opposites. It is for this reason, too, that man alone among the animals is said to have ownership or control of his acts. Very interesting phrase. We own our acts. John Locke also argues this. He talks about the development of the human identity we own our acts. It's not just that we own our stuff. The things we do, we own. And we say that in, in modern street English, own up to it, as this sense of accept. That is something you did. You own that. So he articulated this a little bit further, this human will concept. And another person writing in the same tradition who never cites him, there's a reason for that. He was a, a Spanish schoolman, Francisco de Vitoria, 
And he wrote a very important book, which you can also read in Latin, Spanish, English, other languages, on the Indians. <clears throat> he gives Marsilian arguments, but he never cites him. The reason is Marsilius is known in the Catholic Church as the accursed Marsilius. So one could not buttress your point by saying, as the accursed Marsilius has argued. This, this will not win you points. You don't get the, uh, to be professor at the University of Paris doing that. Well, the question was about these people that the Spanish came in contact in the New World. Who were they? What are they like? They're animals. They can't talk. You go up to them and they say, bar, 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 bar. What should we do? And there was astonishing, brutal, horrifying acts uh, exercised against these people. <clears throat> and some people said this is wrong, and David Torrey was one of them. He wrote a book on them. He said they're not madmen, they're not crazy, they're not stupid, they're not incapable, they're not mere animals. They're human beings, they have accountability for their actions. And every man has the right to his own life and the physical and mental integrity. He was a very serious Christian churchman, and he said it is a wicked sin to force someone to convert. So he believed the Christian faith was true. He believed it was the route to salvation. But he said it is a sin to force them to convert. It's a very important point. You are committing a sin if you forcibly convert them. And another, Bartolome de las Casas, who dedicated much of his life to the defense of these largely defenseless people who had been conquered by the superior military technology of the Europeans. And in, uh, uh, <clears throat> I don't remember now exactly the year, I think it was 1552, he debated Juan Guinness de Sepulveda on the question of the Indians before the church fathers and defended them. He had seen horrifying crimes committed against them. Human beings hunted for sport, uh, speared from uh, horseback uh, as if they were uh, deer, uh, the flesh of human beings chopped up and sold in butcher shops as food for dogs. He said, this is a horrifying crime. It cannot be right. And he wrote, he defended them in a, a debate that took days and days. He won the debate. Juan Guinness de Sepulveda argued they're natural slaves. Aristotle talked about natural slaves. God loves us, the Spanish. We are good Orthodox Christians. And therefore, he created an entire continent full of robots to do stuff for us. Isn't, isn't that obvious? That's what they're there for. And de las Casas destroyed this argument. He said they have cities, kings, judges, and laws, persons who engage in commerce, business people, buying, selling, lending. They have marriages. They live in societies, they're humans. And he also used some other very clever arguments within the context of the church. He said, do you want them to come into church and take communion and put money in the plate? If you do, they're humans because you don't bring your chickens to church. You don't ask them to take communion, farm animals. So if you want them to be in the church, they're human beings and treat them as such. It's a very powerful argument within the context of the church. And at least in theory, they won. One of his students, 
Francisco Marroquin, very important figure. There's a university, Francisco Marroquin University, which is very much dedicated to human freedom in Guatemala. He was the Bishop of Chiapas, which is more or less southern Mexico and Guatemala, roughly. And it is not an accident that this area has a larger percentage of indigenous population because they were not driven to such uh, lengths of uh, enslavement and brutality by their overlords because they had the protection of such people as Francisco Marroquin and the others who are committed to this tradition of human rights. So this tradition of the Spanish scholastics is really fundamental for the idea of human liberty. But again, sometimes these paths get covered up. It's later taken up by other people who are Protestants. They can't really very well quote these Catholic writers. They'll be denounced as papists and traitors to the Protestant cause. Although the arguments are parallel, and we know in some cases many of them had read these authors, but you can't really cite it because you would be considered a heretic and you might be punished in various ways. So this idea of human rights was developed not, as some critics say, to protect the strong, oh, you believe in human rights just because you're a powerful person, it's good for you, but to protect the weak, that rights were claims against power and those who were stronger. A little bit of a digression on what are rights for, what, what function do they have in legal order? And the most important to think about, and here we can draw on David Hume and that tradition within economics, that becomes economics, they're a foundation for social cooperation, right? They allow all kinds of creatures to cooperate to achieve things that are mutually beneficial. I just, I like that image of cooperation that I found on the, on the web. Uh, how is it that we can bring about a socially orderly uh, outcome, one that we would consider to be just. And here I want to distinguish two meanings of the term right as they've been used in jurisprudence. First is objective right, the right outcome. What is justice, as we would say in English? The second is subjective right. What are your rights? This has nothing to do with Ayn Rand's distinction between objectivism and subjectivism. It's a totally different use of the terms. Subjective right isn't subjective in some arbitrary sense. It means the right of the subject, the acting subject. What are the rights of the subject? What do you have a right to do? And if we think about it, these two are related in a very important way in the classical liberal tradition. Now, some have raised the criticism, you think you have rights, but could you have a right to do what's wrong? Because right and wrong are opposites, and that's incoherent. They're actually tenured professors of philosophy who somehow get away with making such uh, juvenile arguments <clears throat> that it's a contradiction to say you have a right to do something that is wrong, like smoking or whatever they de determine is the wrong thing to do. I don't think they're understanding the use of the terms correctly. So let's go back in the history and look at how these words have been used. Aristotle doesn't use the term objective right, but he talks about justice, Greek dikaiosune, it's a disposition or habit, hexis in Greek, which renders men apt to do just things, which causes them to act justly and to wish what is just. So justice is the bringing about of what is just, the proper ordering of the world. That's, he's a great philosopher. But now lawyers chime in, and Ulpian, 
one of the great Roman lawyers, has a rather different definition. And here the Greek term isn't decay, uh, but the eus. And right or justice is a steady and enduring will to render unto everyone his right. The basic principles of right are to live honorably, not to harm another person, and to render to each his own. So if you owe a, a debt to someone, you, you pay your debt. If, if you're in possession of someone else's stuff, you return it to them. And practical wisdom in matters of right is an awareness of God's and men's affairs, knowledge of justice and injustice. Now, we come to one of the great figures in this tradition, and that's St. Thomas Aquinas. St. Thomas is normally remembered uh, in philosophy courses for his attempt to reconcile his Christian faith with science, in this case, the rediscovered texts of Aristotle and of Greek philosophy, which was science, that had been lost for so long, and was rediscovered partly because Arabic texts had, remained, had retained them, Arabic philosophers and Islamic theologians. And some of these were then translated from Greek into Arabic and then Arabic into Latin. Not all of them, but some of them were, had been translated in this double fashion and uh, brought to the Latin uh, readers of the West. And he wanted to reconcile Christianity with science. But there's something else that most people don't pay attention to, the rediscovery of the Roman law, which had been compiled in the year 530 under the emperor Justinian by the great lawyer Tribonian. Justinian had said, Trib, could you compile over the last thousand years of Roman law? They said, okay. So he wrote down the great digest of Justinian, as it's known, and the Institute of Justinian, which is a kind of short teaching text, all the legal decisions and ordered them in a great new innovation, one of the great technological innovations. It was better than Twitter. It was more revolutionary than Instagram. It's called the book, or a codex in Latin. It's a new innovation, not a scroll. Scrolls are hard to look things up. Oh, that was on scroll 90, no, scroll 80. Which scroll was it on? You have to unroll them. A codex has leaves, and in many languages they are called leaves, because they were originally written on leaves. And you can organize it by chapters, and you can leaf through it and find what you want. So it's an enormous device. And for some of you young people who haven't seen them, there's whole buildings full of thousands of these. <laughs> There's thousands of them, and you could, it's a great experience. And, and you walk in, just smell the pixels uh, <laughs> from all these wonderful old books, uh, not all of which are online yet. Uh, he wanted to reconcile the Roman law with philosophy and Christianity. And so the question is, Aristotle, the great philosopher, says one thing, and the great lawyer, Ulpian, says another about what justice is. How to reconcile them. And his reconciliation was brilliant. It's really important what he achieved. The act of justice in relation to its proper matter and object is indicated in the words, rendering to each one his right. He quotes Isidore, a man is said to be just because he respects the rights of others. What he's doing here is really important. The way we get a just society is not by knowing objective right, what is the just ordering of society, but by respecting the rights of others. 
That's something you and I can do. None of us can really know what's the best ordering of society. No one has the knowledge of where all the resources are best put, who deserves them the most. Not possible. But I do have a good understanding that if I just walk up to someone and took that person's shoe, it would be wrong. And I think everyone understands that. Right? We, we know in most cases what the rights of other people are. It's fairly easy to observe. The epistemological argument is parallel to Ludwig von Mises' argument against socialism and why we need the price system. No one can know what is the best allocation of all the scarce resources in the world. It's not possible. The knowledge is not available to anyone. But prices give us the knowledge that allows us to bring about cooperative results. So what is the best material for conducting electricity? Gold or platinum work really well. Therefore, all the wiring in the building is gold and platinum. Has very low resistance. No, it isn't. How do we know that? Because we have prices. Copper is much cheaper. So we use copper instead, even though it's not as efficient from an engineering perspective. But prices tell us there's a lot more of it. It's more efficient to use copper. So for the same reason, no one can have the knowledge necessary to plan the, the economy. So we use prices. We can understand them and adjust our behavior to them. Rights have a similar function. I can adjust my behavior because I know the rights of other people, and I can appeal to what they want. I can try to satisfy their interests if I want to achieve what I want. I don't have to start with the social ordering mentality. There is, by the way, a great movie on this by Woody Allen, Bananas, if anyone has seen it, when he becomes rather inadvertently the dictator of some banana republic, and he begins, they say, so what are your plans? And he says, from now on, the language of the country is Swedish. They're all puzzled. He says, everyone must speak Swedish from now on. And you have to change your underwear every day. And you have to wear it on the outside so we can check. So right? he goes kind of crazy. No one could actually begin to plan a social order. That's Woody Allen's subtle libertarian message to us. Now, this principle, though, that um, St. Thomas articulates that becomes very influential for the jurisprudence, classical rights theory, was rediscovered by Robert Nozick. Nozick didn't believe in the history of philosophy. He thought it was a waste of time. I disagree with him on this. I think it's really fascinating and well worth your time. But he was a brilliant man. He did his own stuff. and He thought it would be a waste to read a lot of dusty old books. But he rediscovered Thomas Aquinas' principle about justice-preserving transformations. Whatever arises from a just situation by just steps is itself just. That's what we need to know. The baseline is just, and every step was just. The outcome is just. I don't have to know what is the just outcome and measure it against what people get to. The fact that the steps were just is sufficient to, to warrant the justice of the outcome. There's no just outcome that we have to constantly guide society towards achieving. But in addition, it led to harmony and social peace. And here Thomas again reaching back to Aristotle. Aristotle had a brilliant critique of communism and of lack of property. As a sidelight, the Straussians interpret Plato as not having been a communist, that he was actually giving us a 
different story and trying to look into the human soul and all the talk about uh, communism was uh, window dressing. Um, Aristotle knew Plato and Aristotle said he was a communist. I trust Aristotle. Not a communist in a Soviet sense, but he was against property. And Aristotle said, you know, it just doesn't work. And to translate it in modern terms, he says, anyone who's lived in a joint common dorm room knows this. No one washes the dishes. Because it's everyone's responsibility means it's no one's responsibility. And what is in charge of, in the care of everyone is in the charge of no one. And nothing will be taken care of. And Thomas Aquinas says the same thing. A more peaceful state is assured to man if each one is contented with his own. It's to be observed that quarrels arise more frequently when there is no division of the things possessed. So it brings about social harmony. But in addition, it needs to be a system that does not put us at variance with each other. And John Locke articulates this. The duties of life are not at variance with one another, nor do they arm men against one another. The duties, the moral responsibilities of human beings are such that we should, in principle, at least in most cases, be able to live together without clashing. We may have differences of various sorts, but we don't come into clash, into conflict. And then Immanuel Kant, in his somewhat more opaque language, talked about the relationship between objective and subjective rights. The right, the just ordering, is the sum total of those conditions within which the will of one person can be reconciled with the will of another in accordance with the universal law of freedom. So the justice is about living together in a way that is harmonious because our rights are such that we can exercise them without coming into violent conflict with each other. It should create what F.A. Hayek called an order of actions. Hayek was very good at trying to specify the use of terms, and the word order is a very important one. It has come to have a very negative connotation, at least in English, but I think some other languages as well, because authoritarian states and dictatorial states always said, we are for order, law and order. That phrase has an ugly connotation. But the earlier meaning of law and order was very important to liberalism. Under law, not arbitrary power. We want law. And law brings about an ordering of society. That was perverted. That language was adopted by authoritarians to mean the iron fist. It's a sad thing because we need to have that concept of, of the order of society. And Hayek articulated different kinds of order. The order of the army. Everyone marches in lockstep. You have military drill. You take orders. All the feet swing out at the same time as North Korean soldiers are marching to take the most extreme version probably still on the planet today. That's a kind of order. There's an order of a graveyard. All the gravestones are lined up. But there are other kinds of order, like the orders of language, that aren't like that. But they bring about cooperative results. People can achieve common understanding. And as he pointed out, what is required of the separate actions of the individuals, all of you in some uncoordinated fashion, you're not taking orders from anyone, are to result in an overall order is that they not only do not unnecessarily interfere with one another, but in those respects in which the success of the action of the individuals depend on some matching actions by others, there will at least be a good chance that this correspondence will actually occur. Simple example. I go to the grocery store, and there's stuff there that I want to buy. This does not happen in Venezuela these days. Did not happen under socialism generally. Turns out 21st century socialism is remarkably like 20th century socialism. There's nothing to buy. 
You go to the store where you expect stuff, and there's nothing there. But go to a country where they don't have ministries planning these things, and there's an abundance of the things that you want at the place you expect to find them. That's what Hayek is getting at. That is the order of a free society. Now, something happened, though, and I'll conclude on, on this element. Rights theory was derailed. We got the emergence of social rights and the rights explosion. Rights, rights, rights to all kinds of things. And people like Justice Scalia have, as a consequence, thrown rights virtually out of discourse because it has been so degraded. And I understand some of the impulse, but I think he's made a, great, a grave mistake in doing so. The most important and influential figure to do this was a man named T.H. Marshall, very intelligent guy, he gave a series of lectures at Cambridge University, it was published as a book. And he argued that we needed a new category of rights. The classical liberals helped us to secure civil rights, the rights necessary for living in a civil society, freedom of speech, freedom of worship, uh, private property ownership of your stuff, your, your personal possessions, political rights, the right to some say in the political order, voting, and so on. And now the socialists would bring us social rights, new category of rights, associated with the delivery of social services to the people, National Health Service and, and uh, various socialized enterprises, and that we would take the basic quality of human membership and give it new substance and a formidable array of rights. And this is part of a general trend happening in much of the world of social rights. The new Bill of Rights, articulated earlier by the Roosevelt administration, said we have a new Bill of Rights. It's not in the Constitution, but it has equal legal force. Cass Sunstein, who defended this, said, in some way, these rights had migrated into the Constitution. I always thought, where's the migration clause of the Constitution? I, I missed that one. There's an amendment clause. Where's the migration clause where things migrate into the Constitution? You have the right to a remunerative job in the industries, shops, or farms, or mines of the nation. The language, the implicit collectivism is quite interesting. Uh, you have the right to trade an atmosphere of freedom from unfair competition and domination by monopolies. That's called protectionism. Uh, the right to a home, the right to adequate medical care, the right, right to achieve and enjoy good health, uh, the right to adequate protection from old age, uh, the right to good education, we're still waiting on that one, uh, and so on. So you have all of these new rights, 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 rights. And the formulation of this, the one that is now dominant, Joseph Raz from Oxford University says, well, we shouldn't understand rights in the old choice theory of rights. The right, the right holder of a right was identified as the person who had the power to waive the obligation of another. So if I have a right to receive $20 uh, from Adam here, he owes me 20 bucks, I'm the right one who has that right. We know I'm the right holder because I'm the only one who can say, Adam, it's okay. I forgive the debt. But we'll talk about it later. Um, so I'm the one who can choose. I'm the choice holder about the debt that is due to me. Reyes says, no, no, we have a new approach. A right is an aspect of X's well-being, his interest, which is a sufficient reason for holding some other person to be under a duty. So whenever I have an interest sufficient to hold another under a duty, as defined by someone, which is the state or the bureaucracy, then I have a right. I happen to have interest in lots of things. If I have an interest that someone deems important enough to hold another person under an obligation, then I am deemed to have the right. It has nothing to do with anything I've done or any power 
or choice that I had. And that breaks the connection between objective and subjective right, or between justice and rights. They're no longer coordinate. Now they're broken apart. And that is really important. So interests conflict all the time. We know that. If interests conflict, rights are going to conflict. And that is going to generate brutal forms of conflict. I tried to pick the most gruesome image I could choose uh, from the internet of violence. And people come into conflict over all these entitlements and rights. Here's a simple example. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is a classic statement, the first 21 elements are classical liberal rights. After that, they change in character very different. Now they're all entitlements to receive health care and so on. Everyone has the right to rest and leisure, reasonable limitation of working hours, periodic holidays with pay. But everyone also has the right to health care. Might there ever be a conflict between the right of the doctors and the nurses to have holidays and the right of people to be treated? This actually has been dealt with in a number of countries. And people have been conscripted into providing services to other people as a consequence. Now, there was an interesting claim. Um, Jeremy Waldron is a very smart, socialist-oriented, not as socialist as it used to be, but in that direction, thinker. And he says, you know, he embraces Reyes's theory of interest. He says, conflicts of rights are inevitable. And this multiplicity stands in the way of any tidy or single-minded account of the way in which the resolution of rights conflict should be approached. That's us. We're tidy and single-minded because we don't like a legal system generating conflict. We like legal systems to generate cooperation and harmony rather than conflict. Well, here's an interesting debate as I wind up here. Morris Cranston was a classical liberal at London School of Economics, and he criticized the Universal Declaration. I want to run through a debate between him and Jeremy Waldron. He said, look, writing when he did, is published in 1967, if it is impossible for a thing to be done, it is absurd to claim it as a right. At present, it is utterly impossible, will be for a long time yet, to provide holidays with pay for everybody in the world. Right? There are very, very poor places in the world, and there are no, not enough resources for holidays with pay. And I think it's a pretty powerful response. In what sense is that a human right? You have a right to go on a holiday, paid holiday, when you're on the edge of existence. Here was Waldron's response. A little complicated, but I want to run through it quickly. Waldron said, well, yes, but for any one of these individual inhabitants, pick a very poor country like Burkina Faso in Africa, very low income. For any one of them, it is not the case that his government is unable to secure holidays with pay or medical care, education, or other aspects of his welfare for him. Indeed, it can probably do so and does for a fair number of these citizens, I put it in bold, leaving it an open question who these lucky individuals are to be. And I asked them once at a conference, I said, Jeremy, what do you think they do in Congo do they, or Zaire? Do they, do they really hold a lottery? So it's like, woohoo, you won. You get the palace in France. No, it's Mobutu Sese Seko, the dictator, who gets the palace in France and the expensive medical treatment. Uh, it's not random. It's not just lucky individuals. There are ways these things are resolved, and they are not ones you would be happy with. 
as he says, for any one inhabitant of the region, you could make a claim that his interest is important enough to justify holding the government under a duty to do it, and they could do it for that person. In each case, the putative right does satisfy the test of practicability, taken one at a time. There's enough wealth in Zaire for one person to live like a king, and indeed, one person did. The problem posed by scarcity and underdevelopment only arise when we take all the claims of right together. In other words, only always. <laughs> only when we live together. I was just astonished. This is how you get to be a professor. This is not a solution to the problems we human beings have in the world. It's only a problem when we take all the claims together. It is the combination of all the duties taken together which cannot be fulfilled. Okay, fine. Uh, what it means is you will have conflict. This is just a recipe for conflict. And in the real world, which is what we want our rights theory to address, not just an academic seminar among logicians, but real people living together, this is inadequate. But it also means that if rights conflict and the state is going to decide which is to be realized and which not, by hypothesis, it will have to be on the basis of something other than rights. Because if I say you have the right to it and you have the right to it, but they cannot both be fulfilled, and we are going to decide, or I, which one of you gets to do it, it cannot be on the basis of right because you both have the right to it. So it's something else. So they haven't made a richer array of rights. They've sucked rights directly out of the legal system and replaced it with power, tribalism, clientelism, cronyism, and all of the other means of allocating scarce resources. So I think it's very important for us to return rights discourse to a proper understanding of what fundamental human rights are about. They are few, they are parsimonious, they are important and precious, and avoid the explosion of rights that has led some, Justice Scalia among them, to essentially dispense with the idea of rights altogether. With that, we have a little bit of time uh, I wish I had more, but I had so much to get through. And if anyone would like to pose any problems, please do so. Thank you. Yes, sir. So I was wondering how you respond to some people, even you know, even some people who consider themselves libertarians, make arguments for for positive rights. I mean, they they say, you know, if you have people who you know, even through sort of, you know, hard work, aren't able to earn a, a decent living, you know, why should they respect, you know, the social system, you know, that, that, that doesn't allow them to, to, to maintain that, you know, why shouldn't they just go rob the rich or, you know, get a bunch of friends together and vote somebody who will rob the rich for them? Uh, okay. That, and, and, and they sure, say, you know, so what incentive do people have to respect the social system there yeah. that doesn't provide them with the positive rights in that respect? It's actually, it's not an unreasonable question to pose is it in the interest of people. And the first point to consider is that maintaining a system of property as opposed to just kind of randomized theft and so on makes possible a much more commodious life for even the poorest members of society. And I've been in plenty of societies where very poor people or people who suffer physical handicaps suffer in ways unimaginable in wealthier societies. Wealth makes everyone better off. So we all have an interest, including those who are the least fortunate among us, in a prosperous society, and a prosperous society requires a system of ordered rights. Now then the question is also, uh, there are clearly people who through no 
fault of their own or maybe through some mistake or some unforeseeable improvident act uh, have suffered and we have a number of means of taking care of them short of coercion. Charity is the one that usually comes to people's mind, but also insurance, which is a very important principle, and mutual aid, which is a kind of insurance that's not commercialized. Mutual aid used to play a much bigger role in society than it does today, and I edited a little book called After the Welfare State that has chapters on the history of mutual aid and so on. You could argue, though, well, what if we can solve all those problems through voluntary interaction, then there would be no need for coercion. That argument would dissolve. What if it couldn't? Well, then one could entertain that and say maybe a generalized tax on the population to take care of those people would be justified. But that would be, in my opinion, the least preferred option. You'd need to exhaust the others before reaching that. But I would leave it as an open, as an open topic. I don't want to live in a society in which people are starving uh, around me. And uh, the good news is that in well-ordered free societies, it doesn't happen. Yes, sir. So uh, I'm actually reading through Waldron's uh, The Right to Private Property Rights. Oh, okay. Well, that's an interesting book separate from the one I quoted. Oh, okay. And there he cites Ludwig von Mises. He finally became convinced Soviet communism wouldn't work after it collapsed and figured out why. <laughs> so, so my question was, I agree that there's definitely a problem with this... Um, yeah, can you speak? Even I can't hear it. So. Okay. Is that better? Yeah. Okay. So I agree there's definitely a problem with this sort of, um, you know, Joseph Raz or HLA Hart's view of rights, um, but it also had the advantage of being analytically rigorous in a way that, like, Nozick's view of rights wasn't. He just stipulated, we have rights, what are they? Uh, well, first off, Nozick uh, has been criticized for not giving an argument for rights, but that's not what the book is about. And Thomas Nagel should have read the book. He didn't. Mm. He read one chapter of the book, and he said, it doesn't tell us why we have rights. If you read the first page, it says, assuming we have rights, is government justified? That's what the book is about. It's not a book about why we have rights. It's a book about why he thinks government is justified in a world in which rights fills the, the legal space. He could have written extensively on this topic elsewhere, but, but that book was a, actually a response to anarchism. Mm -hmm. It was not a response to socialism. And these guys just... They literally didn't read the book. Hmm. They read one chapter that was interesting to them. Second thing, Anarchy, State, and Utopia. The, the second thing that, that's... So I just think it's an unfair rap on, on Nozick. Hmm. Um, he has a few sort of elliptical passages, but that's not what the book is about. Hmm. Uh, the second point is that I don't think the analytical, analytical rigor as opposed to practical applicability should be the primary test. And I'll give you an example of... Um, the name will come to me later, uh, another analytical philosopher, and he points out that the obligation to do X and the obligation to not do X, both of which are legally punishable, are only practically incompatible, but not logically. So, okay, I'll think of, I'll remember that when I'm in prison. I just thought that was the, the most absurd and ridiculous, authentically laughable approach. And he argues, in deontic logic, it's not a contradiction. So, well, you're just going to go to prison one way or the other. Mm -hmm. What's the point of that? So on, on that level, I think that, that I love analytical rigor. But if it comes at the expense of practical use, I have no interest in it. I just think it's useless. And again, the person sitting in prison who is punished for doing it or not doing it, both of them, it's of no interest to him that 
under the system of deontic logic of a professor at the University of Nottingham, it doesn't matter. I hope that's adequate. And with that, we're out of time. Thank you. And we're going to be back here at uh, 3.15 for more fun with economics with uh, Professor Myers.